You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. Preventing that kind of carnage against U.S. forces is the aim of a super-secret government program that cuts through the mountain of big data and gets the important information to the warfighter almost immediately. Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Harridge takes us inside the NSA's cutting-edge targeting program. Relentless attacks on American military personnel during the Iraqi surge drove the need for real-time intelligence to take al-Qaeda off the battlefield and to dismantle its bomb-making factories. Starting in 2005, um, we started seeing a big uptick in, uh, in casualties. Rick Legit is the deputy director of the National Security Agency. And for the first time, the NSA is speaking publicly about its highly secretive program called the Real-Time Regional Gateway, or RTRG. Lieutenant General Keith Alexander, who was then the director, had this vision to be able to provide in real time or near real time warning information to the troops. You were one of the first people on the ground in Iraq. We needed to try and get in front of our adversaries. Colonel Bob Harms was at Baghdad's Camp Victory, where NSA computers housed in this covered area took traditional streams of intelligence and married it up with information gathered during raids. Okay, let's go. We were able to get phone numbers. We were able to get addresses. We were able to see connections. Think of it like a phone app, but instead of directions, it's flagging terrorists. It might connect something like a phone number to a location, to an activity, and then display that to, uh, to an analyst who could then, via the radio, contact a convoy that was en route and say, hey, there's what looks like, a, like an ambush. NSA technical experts like Christian Pike were no longer sitting behind a desk. They were working side by side with special operations. The program went from Iraq to Afghanistan and then other conflict zones that the NSA will not publicly identify. Since 2001, we've deployed 5,000 NSA people to Iraq and 8,000 to, uh, to Afghanistan and in total 18,000 to hostile areas around the world. The NSA Memorial Wall pays tribute to the fallen. I get a little emotional about this. NSA technical expert Christian Pike and his team were badly outnumbered. It was killed in Afghanistan in 2013 supporting the SEALs. What a decade ago was groundbreaking is now a standard tool for the warfighter. At Fort Meade in Maryland, Catherine Herridge, Fox News. <sighs> okay. Um, I want to know more about the timing of this thing. Mm. So the... The inspiration for this episode came from an article that was published in May of this year by a journalist named Henrik Moltke, and he writes for The Intercept, which is obviously a source that you and I love, as do many of our colleagues, because it's so interventionist, and because his founding members were very close to Snowden. So a lot of the stuff that comes out of it is very controversial, but it's very, very good. Empirically, it's fascinating. And so this article comes out on May 29th of this year. It's called Mission Creep, how the NSA's game-changing targeting system built for Iraq and Afghanistan ended up on the Mexico border. What's cited inside of this fascinating and very, very long article is the development of the system that was just talked about in this news clipping, right? So this news, so this Fox coverage comes out, when was this? May of 2016? Yeah. May of 2016. Right. 
this is a re- uh, sorry a surveillance apparatus used in Afghanistan that is responsible for providing real-time data to soldiers in the ISAF in 70% of all missions executed throughout the war on terror and is responsible for executing 6,534 people. Right? So this is at least many of them, if not the majority were civilians. In fact, the article cites that nine out of 10 people were civilians, which is crazy, right? So anyways, again, back to my point about timing. So this is all happening in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And this Fox News thing comes out in May of 2016. And then The Intercept finds out that this, which is called the real-time regional gateway, which is essentially a surveillance facility, is being installed in San Antonio, Texas, to be used on the Mexico border one year later, in 2017. I am fascinated by the idea that the NSA just randomly decides to come out as in a Fox exclusive, the NSA director, to talk about how great the real-time regional gateway is. And then this bunker buster of an article comes out saying, hey, that thing that killed all these civilians in the Middle East, it's in the U.S. now. And it's tracking all sorts of people. And they used the USS Georgia, which is a a United States Navy submarine, to collect 31 million phone records as part of the the development and deployment of this thing in, in Texas. It's crazy. And this is all happening in a time right now where companies that are involved in border surveillance are being hacked. Like there's literally been two or three mainstream articles this week alone about companies getting involved to develop surveillance technologies that clearly don't work. So yeah, anyways, that's that's my first thought is the timing on this sort of thing. Like what what's the intention here? Is the NSA concerned about making sure that stuff they did in the Middle East is appropriate to use at home? I don't know if it's a, a, a if it's appropriate, but it's it's efficient. That the the timing is just um it's a matter of efficiency for the NSA for these people are interested in getting information period. That's the end goal of the NSA. The end goal of intelligence in general is to just get information. What's the sort of better way or the best way to get information? Use the ways in which have have been proven useful elsewhere. And this has been relatively uh, useful, or at least that uh, news clip will have us believe that um, relatively useful since 2005. Uh, so the first RTRG was developed in 2005 in Afghanistan, um, and then 2007 in in Baghdad. Um, so it's been used now for at least a decade um, mm-hmm. to uh, create or to uh, to efficiently collect and disseminate information. So the timing it, it's it doesn't take a genius to sort of figure out the timing is about what is the sort of domestic threat at home or at least what is the sort of political understanding of what the domestic threat at home is. Um, And this is the sort of, (laughs) this is another example of how sort of military technologies developed in the military begin elsewhere. And then as the, the author of this um, particular piece says, creep home, 
or or the mission creeps to the domestic. So this is just another sort of another example. And and right now the issue is much less um, on at the international level, and the political realm is and has been since 2017, 2016 even has been focused on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's even that complicated to figure out the timing. The war on terror is uh, is over, or they'll um, sort of have you believe that. There's, it's no longer a threat. International terrorism is less of a threat, and it's now a domestic threat. Which is not a new story. Of course, no. At all. No. Okay, so the United States government has a lot of history <laughs> of fumbling and bumbling around about uh, um, the ways in which different pieces of legislation are updated, how that's going to enable certain surveillance and monitoring and tracking technologies, how and whether people are going to be intercepted, what rights they have, especially if they're not from the US, so on and so forth. This is old. Like This is very, very old stuff. Like The majority of our listeners are going to get this, right? But I, I disagree with you that the timing isn't... I disagree that the timing thing is is self-evident. And, and here's part of the reason why. So in the article um, from The Intercept, which is really fascinating, we'll, we'll put a, a link up for everybody so they can go and check this out. Um, the journalist cites that the NSA announced the RTRG would become publicly used in 2017, in tw- May of 2017, right? Why is the NSA director talking about this in 2016? Why why not talk about this immediately when it comes out? And my hypothesis is that because of the long history of problems associated with the development and release of surveillance technologies, especially because government is not the first to release them, they're anticipating pushback. Now, this article in The Intercept just came out. And there have only ever been three articles, including this one, ever written about the RTRG. So knowledge about potential privacy and ethics and uh, civil rights and liberties issues are, are still just, just hitting the manifold here. But something else that they touch on in this article is how much backlash European countries went through when the, the real-time regional gateway was used in Afghanistan. The Norwegian government went to hell and back. Because of articles that Glenn Greenwald published in The Intercept about the real-time regional gateway. I'm not sure if, if people will recall any of this, but if if you want to see the details, you can go on this article from The Intercept and check it out. But basically, Norway, the Norwegian government was heavily implicated um, in the usage of this, this technology uh, in Afghanistan because Glenn Greenwald had reported that the the technology would be mixing together data collected from Europeans and from from Norwegians and I believe people in Denmark. I, I could be a little bit off on precisely what the issue was, but what I think is going on here, I think the government is trying to anticipate uh, potential backlash because of publications coming out of The Intercept. And they're basically trying to spin a very positive narrative about how this is going to protect people's lives. So that's that's my only disagreement so far with you. I don't even think I would disagree. I would. I, I think that's all part and parcel to this. <laughs> I think that's all that is exactly what sort of any time you see a government official particularly when you get into like secretive agencies like the NSA or or the CIA or the FBI it, whenever you see them in public it's a calculated um there's a calculated reason why 
And you can't deny that the NSA has had a terrible track record over the past five years um, in the public sphere. I, I guess I, I just wanted to make sure that you actually agree with me for a change. <laughs> so on, on May 7th um, mm. of 2017, the, the actual announcement that came out from the NSA was really interesting. It's, it's a very like backdoor kind of soft announcement. It wasn't exactly like this Fox News exclusive where the NSA director talked about this incredible surveillance system that completely changed how everything was done on the war on terror. It was more like <laughs> the National Cryptologic Museum in the United States, uh, which is basically a small building on Fort Meade in Maryland. They added a new display in like one corner of the room. And it was basically like of this real-time regional gateway. But what was really interesting about the, the establishment of this display no mention of cell phones or metadata. Mm. Nothing. Of course. And this this is this is obviously like this is about language. This is about like, you know, rhetoric and choosing words and all that sort yeah. of stuff, which I think is a really interesting thing that we can talk about is is language. But um it's also fascinating to me that the entire history of the real time regional gateway is precisely a story about smartphones and metadata bulk collection of G GMS smartphone activity, yeah, like right? Dirt boxes. Dirt box. What a name. That's a huh? brutal name. Can you explain what, what the idea of a dirt box is? Yeah, I can try to what. So the, the abbreviation is a DRT box. Yeah. One word, right? And DRT stands for digital receiver technology. So what this this thing basically is, is like a listening device that emulates a cell phone tower, much like an MC catcher that we've talked about on the show in the past before. And what it does is it dupes your smartphone into thinking that you're a tower that it should be connecting to in order to have like full reception when you're in like a crowded city center, mm -hmm. right? So by running a dirt box, you basically have phones pinging your device I can't believe I'm using the word dirt box in this context. <laughs> this feels so dirty. Oh man. By connecting to this digital receiver technology, you're basically hoarding metadata, right? And, and some of the metadata that this thing is collecting is absolutely out of control. So the metadata that it collects comes from GMS data. Um, and it's, it's filled with numbers. And none of these numbers are encoded. They're not encrypted. This is all kind of just stuff anybody can see if they have the capacity to do it. And uh, one part of that, one dimension of that data is geolocation. So this DRT box can tell if you're within 100 meters of it. It can tell uh, your unique device identifier code, your IMEI, which is basically a 15-digit code that only your device has. Um, it says what kind of payload the data your phone is sending to the tower is carrying. So if it's a text message or a phone call or a photo, that sort of stuff is disclosed. But most importantly, it also has data about the length of the communication that you're sending and when it happens, which they can kind of reverse engineer to figure out where it's going, right? So this is like mass hoarding of data that's being provided by this thing called DRT box. But I think it's really fascinating that they would just call it a dirt box, right? Like insinuating that 
there's a box out there and it's collecting dirt because people are communicating and there's got to be something dirty, right? Because if you dig, what are you going to find? Dirt. That's the logic. Like that this is pathological and this is how th- this this technology is premised in terms of its function and utility. And I mean this this is something that's situated far more uh, directly in your wheelhouse and I'm I know you're going to have something to say about hmm. this and I really want to hear what that is. But I mean before you get into yeah. it, I just want to preface in saying that this is something I want to come back to because this is the thing that confuses me. Mm. You know in the context of like exploring what's noisy and if there's clarity, mm. how how do people organize themselves into certain epistemic social techno-scientific communities? And come up with abbreviations like this, you know, dirt box. Th- that is highly, highly problematic because no matter what way you look at life, the you're basically guaranteed to find something nefarious mm. and insidious, right? It's not called a cloud box. If you don't know anything about it, this is how you get newbies to socialize into the trajectory and momentum of some sort of surveillance project, right? This is how you do it. You pick language that insinuates that you're doing something that is designed to protect people because you're finding dirt that's inherent in the world. Mm. Anyway, so I'm going to stop ranting about that. Yeah, I want to hear more about it. Like sound like, a, like a conspiracy theorist there. You know what? I'm, I'm going to put you in a headlock when I see you. I think that it's not always nefarious. It's not always this, that people have intention and like there's something bigger and broader. There's sometimes maybe... But in this case, so digital receiver technology, all right, that is new. People who may call it something may simply just like use or think of a bunch of words that go after DRT that like make it into something familiar so that people can use. So I'm with you that like these are our acronyms and the ways in which we talk about things like this may make things more simple and digestible for like a new user to understand it, to be able to talk about it. But like, I'm not, I don't know. I think it's a little bit like take the tinfoil off your head. If you're like suggesting <laughs> dirt box, it was an intentional um, acronym or like way to talk about something in order to also emphasize that there's like, it's picking up like dirt or whatever. It may be just a little bit of a coincidence as well. Yeah, I mean, it would it would be really fascinating to do like a kind of sociological study of like the the emergence of a, an abbreviation. Yeah, right? and and the reason why I really disagree that um, there isn't something socially or at least linguistically or can even conceptually significant about the naming of uh, something like a technology is that naming conventions are. Again, they are developed in social environments that are designed to produce a very specific result. When I was at York, I I spent a lot of time learning about this specific like subfield of the social construction of technology, or I guess you could call it as precursor. It's called the empirical program of relativism. And what was so interesting about learning about this, this research trajectory is that it was dedicated to figuring out how like scientific findings can have more than one interpretation, mm-hmm. right? So when, when we look at a data set, for example, from a technology, even some sort of instrument like a smartphone, because it's reading the world around it in 27 different capacities at all points in time. 
when you look at the data, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can interpret that. You can you can look at it and say, well, hey, this data is very, very rich for entertainment purposes because that's why it was built, right? Or somebody from the NSA could come along and say, no, the reason why these things are in there is because the evolution of mass communications technology always starts with military first. We talked about this not all that long ago on a, on a previous episode, right? When when they look at that data, they see pattern of life. This this thing is telling a story about who this person is and who they're going to become. And we can use that data to figure out whether or not they're going to be a problem. But then there's also other people out there who say, no, actually these measurements, these measurements are interesting because it tells a story about how healthy that person is. Do they socialize a lot? Do they get up and move? Should we be reminding them to drink water? So on and so forth. But at some point, some group has to come along usually people that pioneer and create the conditions for those measurements to be made. And they say, no, this is what it's for. This is the reason. And language comes in and things start to close off. This is a standard story Mm -hmm. in the history of science and the history of technology that people use language to close off other interpretations of why something exists or how something functions so that one narrative stabilizes. Another way in which this can happen is by like redefining the problem itself. So you, you go back and you start asking more questions and you start spinning a narrative. And this is why I was talking about the timing. Mm-hmm. Why is the NSA interested in having a Fox News exclusive about a surveillance institution that one year later, we're going to find out, ends up at a border after it was disclosed in some random corner in Fort Meade in a museum as their way of letting the world know that it's there when we know that it hoards Metadata, the context of metadata being made of my phone has absolutely nothing to do with the context in which they're deriving and and building interpretations about who I am or who I'm going to become. So when you have the word literally dirtbox, and I don't mean the abbreviation anymore, I mean in the NSA documents that were covered inside of this article, they they add the I in the word dirtbox. When when was the last time you played in a (laughs) dirtbox? Well, I was doing some work in my backyard, like on the weekend. You sure, that wasn't your sandbox. <laughs> no, it was. It was dirt. I wish it was sand. Sand, dirt, dirt box. Maybe you can plant things in a dirt box. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where thing grows. Like I don't know. Maybe maybe that's like the normative counterpoint mm-hmm. to the my whatever you call it conspiracy BS, which is not. Well, I, I like like any conspiracy. I don't think it's all conspiratorial. Like I don't think you're what you're saying isn't without some merit. I definitely think the ways in which we talk about things have some sort of uh, effect on um, the ways in which we use them, adopt them, change them, fix them. That's, that's one thing. But I think that in general, when we start to talk about surveillance, we tend to overemphasize the conspiracy side of it and underemphasize like that could have just been a coincidence. Like we need more, more uh, analysis than like this article to like jump on that and be like, oh yeah, it was created. the 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 term dirtbox is used because the original, you know, socio technical uh, creators of that decided that it was only going to catch dirt. Like I don't like it's only going to catch bad stuff. Like I don't know. I think that's just a little bit too much, a little too tinfoily on the head for me. Uh, I, I, so, so people, <laughs> so people understand 
And this this definitely came out in podcasts pre-November of last year. Yeah. Um, Derek is of this belief that a lot of people in surveillance studies um, are a little bit, what would you say? Um, too scared? Yeah. Too, too, too concerned? Too, it's too much conspiracy. Too much every, everything about surveillance is bad. Everything is meant, is insidious, and is nefarious, and is meant mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. control the masses. Right. And it ignores and can, some I, of the productive nature of it. I can see why you get that impression. And I've been very close to the heart of the surveillance studies community now for almost a year. And uh, I, I'm telling you this because I'm not reading from the outside. I'm in it every day. I'm working with surveillance studies people and there, I can see why people get that impression, but the amount of empirical rigor and it's dedicated to investigating um, the propagation of surveillance systems around the world is incredible. Like I, I sat with a group of PhD students and candidates recently at the surveillance studies summer seminar, which happens every other summer it just happened to be hosted here at Queens for this, this, this year. And the projects that people are doing, man, it's just, it's humbling. When I started wondering about surveillance and, and Facebook and, you know, uh, privacy problems on things like WhatsApp or, uh, different cloud, cloud-based hosting systems, I didn't have the empirical chops that these people have now. And so like there, there is some groundedness here. There's a lot of it. And these projects are showing us that actually there there is a lot more to be said about the the dangers of these kinds of technologies. So, anyways, I I understand where you're coming from with regards to that kind of uh, that that fear. I don't think it's about rigor, though. I don't think that I'm that I'm questioning the science that's out there or the science that is sort of propagated in in this field. I'm not questioning. It's it's you know, I know it's robust. I know it's nuanced. It's methodologically rigorous. I, I get that. I think that there is an impossibility of, uh, of true or, or of finding enough information that supports a lot of what is said. I think a lot, I think that there are great empirical projects um, but I think that the nature when you're studying the hidden and the purposefully hidden, like for a living, mm-hmm. you're never going to be able to prove or like you're never, it's going to be very, very challenging to fully support some of the claims that are part of the sort of theoretical understanding or the the inevitable logical understanding of this, of of how sort of surveillance operates. And, I, and I'm not to say that that means surveillance scholars can't say anything. Not to suggest that like surveillance as a field is like doomed. None of the above. I just think that like we should we should also give some some credit or maybe more credit to technology and to the usefulness and the productive aspect of of technology um, in that field a little bit more rather than always always focusing on like. The normative the control, bias. Yeah, the control okay. aspect of it. The the nineteen eighty four and just maybe maybe I'm just yeah. maybe I'm just like I haven't read enough in the area lately. I, I am completely willing to 
to get my Twitter blown up by surveillance scholars who just say like, you haven't read <laughs> like, and you know what? That's a fair critique. Um, I've been like alienated from that field for a little while because like there hasn't been that sort of interesting piece or sort of groundbreaking piece um, for, a, for a couple of years. So there, there's a big space here where you and I agree. Um, and I think we can call that space like the relationship between surveillance and harm. Mm. Demonstrating how surveillance hurts people is a real challenge, right? Yeah. I could I could demonstrate, hopefully, by the end of the summer with my colleagues at the Center for Advanced Computing that, you know, how your thumbs touch your screen, that event data, gets used to paint a picture about who you're going to become as a shopper in the next two months. That's a weird, weird thing to connect, right? But then when you start situating evaluation of these profiles by a secondary party that's removed from the data collection and assumption interpretation process, like the NSA, when they use the same sets of data and they build upon the same modalities of interpretation and the flexibilities and the liberties that are taken by data marketers and analytics people along the way. And you manipulate those things to tell a story about threat. Connecting that back to the thumb touches, that's impossible, mm. right? Mm. And, and because the nature upon which security and threat risk is assessed is through correlations. Mm -hmm. you, there, you, can't you can't make a connection a reasonable, rational connection between how somebody uses their smartphone when they wake up and they go to bed and whether or not they're going to blow up the US. Mm -hmm. You can't. It's not possible. Yeah. The NSA has never, ever thwarted a threat at home. This is not news. And so in surveillance studies, we have the challenge then of trying to, to grapple with this sort of thing. But the closer we can get to harm because of surveillance, the more we know that we are legitimately concerned, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I have, I can't but help to point to another report that came out from the intercept called the drone papers, part of which the RTRG was a part of mm -hmm. nine out of 10 people killed in airstrikes were not, who are not direct targets of American drone plane usage in Corangal Valley in all of Southeastern Afghanistan and the Northwestern frontier provinces in Pakistan for the last decade. That is because of surveillance. That is because of hoarding metadata yeah. from people's phones. Yeah. So when I see Dirtbox and I see that this term has been used with France, Germany, Norway, the Netherlands since as early as 2013, yeah, I, I, I kind of let myself off the hook with my tinfoil hat when I'm reading about this kind of stuff, yeah. you know, 6,534 people killed. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you that the actual use of these technologies is oftentimes um, brutal and, and really harms people. I jump off that ship when it's like not talking, not talking about the actual use of the technology. But then st suddenly talking about like the name of the technology and like, I, I, like, I don't know, whatever is sort of tangentially related to the technology. Let's focus on the technology. Let's focus on the technology. Yeah. So we talked for a minute about the kind of metadata that the dirt box is extrapolating from, you know, just people using their phones. Yeah. 
right? So the, the bunker busting headline that came out that, that really hurt the Norwegian government a few years ago, um, literally said that, uh, 33 million, uh, the U S spied on up to 33 million Norwegian calls mm-hmm. because of the existence of the, the RTRG. Yeah. We know that it's collecting this kind of, of metadata from people's cell phone usage. Let's talk about responsibility and the actual function of the technology. Yeah. What what is the relationship between threat assessment and people using their phones? Like what? I mean, because this is what the technology is premised yeah. upon, right? You're not you're not collecting metadata from people's phones because you're bored, right? Yeah. The the technology is designed to solve a problem, and the question is, how do we prevent American soldiers' lives from being lost, yeah. and how do we kill our targets? Yeah but we're targeting civilian smartphones in order to do so. And 6,534 people people have died since. The function of these technologies is scary as all hell, (laughs) to put it lightly. The fact that, and this is nothing new, the U.S. uses other human and non-human actors in other countries to paint pictures that can help them on the ground or that can help them strategically or whatever. This is not new. It's been happening in the history of wars for several generations, if centuries, if not millennia. And I think it's particularly damaging when that comes back sort of back home, which we can talk about in a a few minutes. Um, But I don't think that there, the, the function is, and the justification is that it's saving people's lives but whose lives is it saving and whose lives whose lives um, is that sort of technology endangering? Um, and I think that we as a Western society uh, focus far too much on protecting our own lives and not enough on other people's lives. So the function of this is, is what is scary. Again, that kind of like helps support what I'm saying. The function of this RTRG or dirt box is frightening and is problematic in a variety of ways. Everything else, I I don't know. I like I I don't know about intentions. I don't know about um, who decided to do what. None of that matters, or at least doesn't matter um, to me per se. It's the actual harm caused by the actual technology. Does the technology do the harm without people operating it though? Like if you load a gun and you put it in a room, is the gun going to kill somebody unless it's touched? This is see, this is part of my problem with your question, right? Can the tech do harm unto itself? I mean, we can go actor network theory on this all day long. Mm. Like we can go meet at a ice cream parlor. I can stick my smartphone in a bowl of ice cream <laughs> and we can see what happens, yeah. right? And Latour literally talked about this. The tech has agency. I'm I'm full on with Ant. But how 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 can we situate the function of a surveillance institution, a surveillance apparatus in the context of technological function and harm? without taking into account the social environment around it, the people who are pushing the buttons. I'm not suggesting function, that we right? can't, that we, that we even should do that. At the end of the day, like I'm not even supporting that. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's getting lost, but I don't think that this makes any sense in the grand scheme of humanity, allowing, um, you know, these dirt boxing of cell phones. And basically it creates what our, listeners or what other people might understand as a stingray type thing 
because that's basically what this is. It's a stingray is used by the FBI to, you know, collect information from cell phones in a particular area or from computers or whatever. This is the exact same thing being used internationally. And now we're seeing um, domestically. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not a good thing for humanity. None of this is good. None of this is, none of this is a good thing um, for humanity. Um, so I, like that should be clear, but uh, like I, I, what's the, not what's the point, but what do we get out of uncovering the sort of linguistic aspects of how this piece or this, this technology is constructed? What else do we get out of that? That's a good question. I, I appreciate you asking it. And I, the reason why I appreciate it is because, um, it opens up some conceptual space for considering how it is that understandings of technological function emerge. So I, I want to hearken back a little bit to that empirical program of relativism thing, because the whole point of that trajectory, that, that intellectual attitude, that way of thinking was to draw attention to the fact that there can be more than one interpretation of how something works and what purpose it serves. Who gets to talk about that is you know, making or breaking whether or not that conversation happens. Yeah, and, and the in way in the which it happens as well. Exactly, exactly. And history has matter-of-factly demonstrated that when the core set of technologists or scientists involved in the design of one specific uh, scientific theory, set of scientific findings, a scientific tool, a technological entertainment thing, when they're closely involved in ensuring the success of that thing, they often play a role in steering how other people get to talk and think about that thing. Mm. That's dangerous. Yeah, That's dangerous because if you only allow the same people to continue telling that story, we will only ever think that the NSA's function for the RTRG is harmless when it's not. Yeah. It's killing civilians of overseas. Course, yeah. Right? So the reason why, again, to answer your question, and why we focus on language is to open up spaces to consider these things. Because if we don't talk about rhetoric, if we don't talk about how language forecloses discussion, if we don't talk about how certain language stabilizes an entire debate, then we never have the space to think about like, oh, Okay, so maybe it is a bit manipulative when I leave my apartment building that a van outside the front door is pretending to be a cell tower that I have to pay to talk to so it can profile me about whether or not I'm going to interact with some newcomers from Syria that may or may not be deemed problematic. Mm -hmm. I want to know. I want to know of course. as a human being and as a professional whether or not I'm being duped into making some sort of risk assessment about people i just met yeah of course especially if i gotta pay for it yeah i pay 200 dollars a month for the most ridiculous cell package you, you can possibly have dollars a month oh yeah. it's ridiculous i don't even know how this keeps happening man canada i should really canada stupid crtc oh, so stupid. in canada i wish they would have some more teeth i really <laughs> do uh, these are things i want to know about yeah and but part part of like what we have to take into account here is the privilegedness of our conversation yeah, yeah. you and i are two white males we're not from the Middle East. We don't know how casual smartphone usage has implicated the way in which they travel. Yeah. And part of the burden upon us as researchers right now in surveillance studies is to continue figuring that yeah. out. But again, my point here is that focusing on the language allows us to recognize that, you know, 
looking into like dirt box a little bit more might actually reveal about the painstaking efforts people at the NSA and the technologists that were commissioned to build this stuff took to ensure that there weren't any other interpretations when these things were coming together for the very first time. We didn't learn about the RTRG until this year, mm -hmm. last year, mm -hmm. and they've been, they've been used since 2003. That's crazy. I'm with, I'm with you on everything, but maybe this is, maybe I'm just too ingrained and already too like too much of a sort of critical um, person in general. We don't need to understand that like the acronym. We don't need to understand the way in which we talk about like the, or we've termed this dirt boxing to understand the real like insidious aspects of this. Of well, this, if that's the uh, if that's technology. the delineation that you want to so make, I, just, I agree. I just with turned you. on Siri by saying insidious. That's a little bit scary. <laughs> But like, we don't need to know why they labeled it dirtboxing to understand that this is a, a real shady thing and there's a political project behind it and there's a particular understanding of human interactions that surround the use of this technology. We don't need to, we don't need to get any of that because it's so it's obvious. To, am I just like completely... Is that not obvious to almost anyone? Like the reason we use these technologies and we create these technologies? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, yeah. in the, for you and I, yes, absolutely. For our students, sure. I mean, when you enroll in like the sociology of terrorism or you enroll in surveillance and empire, yeah, it's going to be pretty, pretty gosh darned obvious. But to having this conversation outside of our wheelhouses with everyday people who are implicated and being yeah. profiled in these these ways don't know whether or not they're well, going yeah, they to get don't in trouble even for understand that these things are happening because they don't read the they don't read the intercept they don't read like they're not interested sure yeah i mean and and there's a reason why these things don't show up on yeah. mass media of course there's a the algorithms try to keep this stuff at and when they do they're reasons. on fox news and they're <laughs> yeah, not right? really exactly. talked about because it's all you know we know that the, the sort of leaning the political leaning of fox news so if you bring it out and you say this great technology on fox news yeah no one else is going to pick it up because it's going to be like everything else on fox news it's just part of the and, same um exactly and so listen here's here's another example of why i think the language bit is important for figuring out um like normative implications and dangers associated with tech and function especially in the hands of certain social groups um a few years ago a fox reporter i think his name was jeff white Please, like if anyone's listening to this and they can correct me, like by all means, tweet, email me. I'm pretty sure he said something to the effect that um, what the Snowden revelations revealed is that, uh, you know, tech journalists are being being targeted. You know, like people who founded The Intercept, for example, like Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, uh, they're being targeted by the NSA. No one's going to disagree with that. No, who's going to disagree with that? They literally went to Brazil. They fled the UK after they met with Snowden to create the intercept, right? No one's disagreeing with this. Okay, now we have that buried in our mind. The language he didn't use is more significant. It's more significant because what Jeff White did has been a consistent trend in terms of mainstream news coverage of global surveillance revelations. And what they're doing is they're talking about how people are getting hurt without actually focusing on the dangers of the technology itself. Mm -hmm. 
they're talking about how tech journalists are having a tough time, but they're not actually talking about privacy implications for every everyday people. They're not talking about the, the Snowden revelations and surveillance in a way that's critical. They're looking at secondary, third, you know, far removed implications that misses a more significant point. And it drills down to the one that you're talking about. Language, the use of specific ways of talking about things, and the absence of certain mechanisms steers the narrative. And it prevents people from thinking about privacy in relation to surveillance, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, the worst thing about the NSA right now is that like very, very few people in the world are having a tough time mm-hmm. because that's essentially what Jeff White is spinning. This is why I think thinking about uh, whether or not something is being closed in a debate when certain avenues are being encouraged more than others, that that really alters how people think about something. And it definitely affects the kind of judgments and determinations they make about that thing as well. I completely agree. I've always been someone interested in language and I am continuously interested in how we talk about particular things, but how would you ever uncover some of those intentions in something when it, when it's something so secretive, something so covered up, not saying that again, I'm not saying that's impossible, but like, at what point do you need evidence to make a claim that there's some intention and how do you get that evidence? So if you're suggesting, for instance, to use this example again, the dirt box, that was a, an acronym or a, a way to talk about something that was planned to reinforce some idea about what the information that's collecting. How do you ever find that out? And what evidence could sway you to think that you were incorrect or correct to make that assumption? Do you need an interview with a senior NSA officer? Do you need, can you make these claims based on just the public face of the NSA? Can you make this from a couple of leaks or or many, many, many leaks? At what point do we need to rethink the evidence that we're using to support our claims in this field? I think that's the crux of of my issue with, with the language thing in this context. If you had, you know, if it was open, which I believe, or I think that um, all government agencies should be far more, far more transparent. If, if that was the case where public agencies were completely transparent yeah, I would agree. Then we could find out the ways in which people talk about these things. Then we can find out how those things get talked about and then get actually constructed and idealized and used and developed and changed. But until that, like, until there's full accountability and transparency, we need to really think of the the ways in which we're like supporting what we're saying as academics, as a scholarly community. It seems to me that the these excellent questions that you're raising that I entirely agree with um, are obviously pointing to this gap. Um, and that gap is the the absence of a connection between like discrete surveillance that we can't see and harm. Like yeah. we need to empirically pull that out. That's a noisy it. area, I'm telling you. Like the, that, that's that's as noisy as it gets. 
we know and i i I, I think we need to focus on the harm. Uh, that, that's completely, that's that's where we should focus our scholarly attention on. And I agree that like in a perfect world, like it would be, it would be great to see how the invention of these like socio-technical, well, just technical things really lead to harm in a variety of ways. But it's like, it's navigating, I guess maybe it's a moral or ethical or professional question, navigating how that actually happens with evidence is like so, so challenging in this area. I think I cut you off there. So sorry um, if I cut you off. It wouldn't be the first time, but you don't need to apologize because I really like listening to you talk <laughs> and you, you raise great questions. And I have to say, this has been the most challenging chat I've had with you. Like I'm, there's been times here where I'm like, I, I literally don't know how to answer that <laughs> and that's okay. And I'm totally fine with that because I, I, I try to commit myself to being a reflexive scholar while being as critical as possible. And I love the debate with you anyways, because we come from completely different approaches. Yeah. We, a lot of people outside of sociology, outside of comms who are not social scientists who are listening to this podcast right now, we might appear the same. You know, we're both interested in tech. We're both interested in surveillance and privacy and, and the sociology of terrorism. We've both taught this class side by side with one another for a few years. We are interested in method. We're interested in empiricism. We're interested in theory. We're interested in philosophy of noise, <laughs> confusion, and clarity, right? But at the same time, I don't know anything about criminology. I am not a criminologist. Mm. I don't know anything about radicalization. Not really. I mean... I've taught a couple articles on this stuff to a third year undergraduate class, but in, I mean, especially in comparison to you, I mean, I, I, I have, I have nothing to say. You're the expert on this. Are you about to tell me that I'm out of my element again? No. Okay. (laughs) No, I was actually going to be super, super nice to you. No, I mean, I was, I was going to be like your best friend here. I was expecting, I I can switch gears and I can be a jerk to you if you want, but (laughs) no, I'm not going to do that this time. So that's, these are things I don't know, right? Mm. Um, you're a sociologist. When, when you gave your job talk and they asked you who you are as a researcher, I'm confident that that's what you said. You're a criminologist, you're a sociologist, something like that, right? I, I said I'm a sociological criminologist. <laughs> no oh, joke, funny. I'm not even joking. Oh, that is really good. Yeah. See I, see, I don't know if I can do that. And this is like part of my development as a scholar, because I can't put myself into a box like that. I know it's important to market yourself and identify with like who you are, but, and I understand that this can be kind of political and weird for people, this whole pigeonholing thing that we can't get away from in the academy, despite the fact that we're told in grad school not to worry about it. (laughs) Well, that's not true. We are told to worry about it, but don't like, don't think about the world in terms of boxes. I mean, that's, that's not literally why uh, we're in school is to avoid doing that. That's the philosophy doctorate spirit right um for me though like i have training in science and technology studies which is a a a conglomeration of like originally four different subfields of sociology i'm training comm studies and media studies which is like eight to ten different fields i have a a master's degree in american cultural studies you're weird you have a weird i'm I'm a a weird hybrid i'm all all over the place like one day i talk to you about language and rhetoric the other day it's about metadata and 
you know, like arch- architectural forensics. I'm, I'm a mixed bag as a scholar and that's challenging for me. But my point is, is that you and I are extremely different despite the fact that too many people on the outside were in a pretty similar camp in the academy. Mm. The academy's got a lot of different strands. And so what's been really challenging for me on this conversation is that we are coming at the exact same topic with completely different attitudes and ways of thinking. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a bit stumped. And the reason why the being the stumpedness is significant is because in this chat, we have literally identified a research frontier. Mm-hmm. There, there is an extent to which the questions that we're asking are obviously exposing and illuminating that frontier, but they're also accentuating the difficulties inherent in trying to overcome them. Yeah. And I agree with you that in trying to overcome them has to be empirically motivated first. And I think there are great projects showcased, showcased in Surveillance and Society Journal that are showing how far we're getting with Im- empirical work and surveillance studies yeah. that kind of either give way and ground the kind of like tin foil hat thing, which is definitely a, a, a pulse that I agree with. But it's also saying like, we were right about a lot of this shit. Yeah. And we're seeing it in medicine. We're seeing it in race and gender bias in programming of uh, uh, medical databases and algorithms that extrapolate this sort of stuff. We're seeing in a lot of areas that are closely related to this, this realm of life and scientific practice. Where it really needs to happen is in harm. I totally agree mm-hmm. with you. I hope that's something I can achieve with my metadata tracking project right now. But like where we go from there, no idea. If you ever get in touch with Snowden and he gives you some more stuff, like maybe we can fix this. But it mm. really does take people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden to to put their lives on the line to expose this stuff. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not a big fan of Julian. Like I don't agree with everything he does. But that's what it takes right now. It's like people risking their lives in order to to give us the empirical meat and potatoes we need, right? I think it's it's even more. It's like, to me, this question constantly comes back to like communities of, of praxis that are willing to take on authorities in terms of transparency, like not just academics. There have been academics on this podcast that are doing incredible work to ensure government accountability. We had Alex Luscombe and, and Kevin Walby. Um, mm-hmm. We had Jeff mm-hmm. Monahan on the part. These people are going in and Freedom of Information Act, like using ATI access to information uh, uh, requests for increased accountability. That's one community of praxis that that is trying to get more of this sort of blanket, dirty data, as Gary Marks would call it, but also I think it's up to like people to like put pressure on governments, to put pressure on the NSA, to put pressure on the Canadian government, to put pressure on on the, the, the UK government, any government, to ensure that they're being transparent and accountable. Push back when they say national security. That's an issue of national security. Push back on that. And I think that it takes communities of praxis to really have that happen. And then when we have accountability, or if we can imagine a world where we have actual accountability, then we can start tracing, or then it'll be much easier to start tracing out these things. Um, And I think I actually have to look at surveillance studies a little bit more, just in general. Recently, it sounds like there's been interesting developments. 
there's there's a lot more to to be to be read for mm-hmm. sure for both of us the the thing that still gets me now um by outlining these research frontiers and what's next is when you bring in this this point of praxis with what's needed is people pushing back it's like what it what is the basis that people require yeah in order to push yeah you need some base knowledge, right? It's almost like a, mm-hmm. a vicious cycle, it's a feedback. right? Yeah, it's a yeah, feedback, feedback loop. loop. It's, it's very, very... The, the, you know, man, the funny thing about feedback loops, <laughs> there's two different kinds. There's positive feedback loops and there's negative feedback loops. And the the, the positive ones are actually the ones that are bad. Mm. Yeah, this is like a, a huge, huge, huge popular misunderstanding, cultural misunderstanding of, of cybernetic theory. Mm-hmm. Negative feedback loops are the ones that 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 don't fluctuate a lot. They're predictable. They're the ones that don't throw the trajectory of a technological or socio-technical system off balance too much. They're the one that tells the system that it's functioning in a way that is good. Positive feedback loops are the ones that grow and grow and grow and they get out of control. The ones that destabilize how something moves forward. Yeah. The problem with Praxis right now is that we're recycling a lot of the same critiques and a lot of the same assumptions in a way that's not making a lot of progress. And that kind of feedback loop is killing itself. The the machine of progress in terms of everyday applied resistance to these sort of networks is not getting very far. And this is a critique that is pretty well rehearsed inside of surveillance studies. I don't, I'm kicking myself right now because I don't remember who it was. I want to say Monaghan, but it wasn't. There was like a bombshell piece. Um, it wasn't in Surveillance in Society, actually. It was in a different journal where the surveillance studies scholar had said um, the the culture of resistance, because it is a culture, is one that draws attention to the pitfalls of surveillance without actually stopping it. Hmm. When you protest, you're not stopping surveillance. Yeah. You're you're pissing in its face. You're flipping at the bird. When you wear a mask that throws off a facial yeah. recognition algorithm, you're insulting it. And people see that. People at Google, when they listen to your conversations, as we've discovered this week with the, the Google at home thing, the Google mini that I've got in my kitchen right now with the microphone off, admittedly, <laughs> they're listening to what we're saying. That That literally was just announced in the last 24 to 48 hours. You, you can tell them to fuck off and they will hear you. It's not going to stop them. This is a serious issue. And without that empirical basis of precisely how these things work, we can't interrupt the data flows mm. upon and within which a lot of these dangerous things are, are being constructed, right? If I figure out precisely which algorithm inside my phone is allowing someone to make a claim about whether or not I'm going to be a problem when I visit Trump's USA, I will cut that thing out of my phone. I will find a way to work with the CAC or somebody else like the people at Carnegie Mellon University who are interested in locating the functions inside of, you know, subroutine libraries in an operating system and cut them off to, to freeze them and let the user know which ones are allowing, uh, you know, a certain kind of metadata to move from the app to the cloud. If we can do that, then maybe we have a little bit more sustenance, but I'm totally with you. I, I really think that the empirical absence thing is a real challenge. I don't know how, not that I don't know, I know how it can, how we can move forward empirically, but I I just don't see how that is possible given the current 
structure of the of the social world. It's this sounds so Marxist to me. I'm not even a Marxist, but like <laughs> it's almost you need to rethink the way in which we treat authority and social control in the world, um, in order to to be truly successful in ensuring privacy. That seems to be where we're going. Um, but yeah, I think it's a noisy area. There's a lot of confusion here, even for me. Yeah, both of us. Yeah, I'm like, I'm kind of stupefied right now. Listen, we, we've we talked for an hour about basically mm -hmm. a name for this like RTRG, Dirtbox and language. Yep. And, and like really interesting. And, and like to, th this discussion has me like, thinking of all these new areas in which we can like focus on this uh during this podcast but like we didn't even get we have yet to get to the most important part in my opinion about this article and this shift from using this technology outside of the u.s to now using it inside the u.s and at the mexico border I, I'm, I'm not suggesting mexico is in the u.s but at the u.s border um <laughs> I think we should return to this conversation. I completely agree. We didn't get to what we wanted to talk about. No, today. but we got to but like I'm really, a lot more. I, I'm really glad. Yeah, I'm really glad we didn't get to that point because there is a heck of a lot more to say. I mean, I even have notes here on like dislogics and false positives and confirmation biases that we haven't <laughs> even touched on yet. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Let's, let's reconvene and we'll yeah. actually focus on this stuff being at home. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time, keep listening to the noise.